and welcome to Everyone's a Critic. I'm Julian Stevens. I'm Samuel Hunt. And yeah, this is this is a film show. You've probably heard it before. Um, Samuel, if you haven't, what have you been doing with your life? Yeah, seriously. I mean, would you recommend catching up with the ones previous to this? I would, Joe. Yeah. Yeah, I. I recommend subscribing to... and going and downloading them all again, actually, just to make sure you. And have rating them. it five stars and telling all your friends about it. Yeah, and adding us on Twitter. Yeah. You actually follow someone on Twitter, Samuel? You don't, you don't have them. Oh, right, sorry. Yeah. I'm new to that malarkey. Um, the old man of the group. Jeez, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I'm feeling a bit subdued today, I have to say. I was... Uh, Not quite as subdued as yesterday. Though. No, I was too hungover to even record the podcast yesterday. Yeah. We, we kind of tried, and it just wasn't really happening, was Last it? Last minute cancellation. Yeah. I'm at our, our pre-recording meeting point. Yeah. So I'm ready to go, and... He, he didn't look in a good way, people. He no. did not look, not look in a good way, listeners. Thank you, mate. Um, well, I'll tell you what I did after we cancelled. I went back uh, I went back home and uh, 21 Jump Street was on. Oh. So I just I started watching that. That, that cheer your spirits. Yeah, it always does. It's good fun, that film. That's, it's, a, it's like funny, but actually quite heartwarming as well. Yeah. I find. And guess who's in it? Who's in it, Samuel? Brie Larson. What? Brie Larson plays that girl in it. Is this some sort of... She plays Jonah Hill's love interest. Actually? Yeah. So this is the second time? This is the second time we've seen Brie Larson in a film that's not Room and not recognised her. Actually? You keep talking, I'll just double check. Yeah, bring that up on, on IMDb whilst I keep talking. I'm pretty sure Brie Larson is in that film. Also in the past two weeks, Samuel has seen The Hunger Games for the first time. I surely must have been living under a rock. But you know, mm. what did you what did you think? I really enjoyed it. I really did. I thought um I mean Jennifer Lawrence she just she's able to play like a character that can appeal to a teen audience and at the mm. same time have the emotional depth of a character who, you know, appeals to an older generation. I yeah, think. emotional depth but not particularly showy character. She's very steely, she doesn't really give much away. Is she in it? Samuel's celebrating and fist pumping. Yeah, Brie Larson is in it, yeah. She's the girl in 21 Jump Street, for God's sake. I've, I've closed it now. Oh, okay. So, so no definitive proof as of now. So, that, so what does that say? That says that Brie Larson, unless she's in a leading role, what comes across as unremarkable? I mean... Maybe, but I suppose if you're not looking for her... You know, I, I saw, always I saw 21 Jump Street. <laughs> I saw 21 Jump Street before I knew Brie Larson. Mm. Um, but, you know, I, I saw uh, Short Term 12. Oh, I was going to say, we need to watch that. I mean, but I haven't seen that. You have seen that. Yeah, I have seen that. Well, maybe we'll do that as a, as a hidden... Hidden thing. gem, yeah. yeah. No, that'd be a good one, actually. Yeah. Um, little preview, a little, little thinking out loud. Yeah. Um, but you like The Hunger Games, then? Yeah, so I, I love The Hunger Games. And I, it, was, it was weird. I was watching it, and... Um, I found myself, after sort of 30 minutes, 45 minutes, you know, where they're doing the sort of character development, whatever, and then when I actually got in the arena, I found myself completely gripped. I mean, I was I was watching it on a train in first class, going north. Of course. As you do. Nothing less. Um, and, you know, I just, I was like shouting at the laptop, you know, in this carriage, because I was just so gripped by what was happening on the screen, and I thought it was quite, um, you know, I felt all the emotions you'd want to feel from, you know, I don't know, like... Similar to Twilight, really, I guess. I mean, I wouldn't say similar to Twilight. I think Jennifer Florence is somewhat more engaging. Than what, than Kristen Stewart buying her lip and... Oh, I can't believe you just said that. Mm, I don't know. I, I, have, I, feel like, I feel like Hunger Games probably wouldn't have happened without Twilight. Uh, probably not, no. You know, it really boosted the kind of... The marketability the yeah, of that, that genre. Of YTA... Yeah, young, and young, also that's sorry, YA, young adult y- fiction. That that thing of cutting the last book in half and doing part two parts. And what was the first? It was Harry Potter. Was, that was Harry Potter. Harry Potter was the first one. That yeah, did yeah. That. And it has a lot to answer for. Yeah, because Twilight. I mean, the first part of the last film, the last film, two films, is mm-hmm. really bad. Mm. Because basically nothing happens, because there's no climax. Do you know what I mean? If you have a yeah. book, you have you well, read it, and then there's a climax at the end. Yeah, The Hunger Games did that. I haven't seen the last two Hunger Games films. Um, the Hobbit, a 
300, oh a 300 God. page children's book Jeez. split yeah, yeah. into three like yeah. three hour films and the hobbit's such a great book because it, such it, great it, book. it's really interesting because the hobbit's a really great book and i i've read um the lord of the rings books and i just found them so long and just so drawn out long-winded mm. really 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 ploddingly boring so you preferred the hobbit so so they've taken the Lord of the Rings films and given one film to each book yeah. where they're really plodding and they've taken The Hobbit which is fantastic, concise, really readable, you know, you, you read it in a one, one sitting and they've made three films out of it. It's like they're determined to just drag things out, you know? Yeah. Really do, you like, do you like The Lord of the Rings films? Yeah, I think they're better than The Hobbit films. Oh, yeah, undoubtedly so. Yeah. But again, that's because each book has its own film. So there's a climax at the end of the book. Well, yeah. There's and a there's, climax at the end of the film. And the they Hobbit. pack loads of stuff into it. You don't even feel like they're shoehorning <clears throat> random stuff into it. Yeah, exactly. Whereas, yeah, I just, I don't really understand it, to be honest. But Dollars or the bills. Well, it's cool. Yeah, it must be. Worked out on a spreadsheet. Yeah. It's not how films should be made. Although, you know, Samuel does organise his films via a spreadsheet. It's not how he makes them. I don't organise them via a spreadsheet. I have... A list of all the films I've seen on a on a spreadsheet because it's yeah. probably the most practical way to have them. Of course, on there. yeah, yeah. But I'm not going to publish that spreadsheet because it would give away too much no. about my favourites. Maybe, maybe they could be like the Posthumous, the the Hunt Diaries. Yeah. <laughs> like, Free Willy's in the top ten. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not even a joke. That's not even a joke. Free Willy's in the top ten. But, but Free Willy is a work of genius. New Moon four stars. Yeah, <laughs> gonna... no, New Moon. That was a typo. Okay. That was a, that was a typo. Okay. Chris, Chris got hold of my computer. Okay. Um, okay, well, what have we got coming up today? Well, uh, Samuel, you're going to review... Mustang. My second foreign language film on the trot. Thanks very much, Joe. You're going to see a shit film next time, I'll tell you that much. Just because you don't like subtitle films. We both really enjoyed the Brand New Testament, didn't we? Yeah, but that was still... God, does that mean I've seen three subtitled films on the trot? Maybe. <laughs> oh my God! I've seen you're the so Brand cult- New Testament, you're Son so of Saul, and Mustang in a row, and you've seen Eddie the Eagle, Everybody Wants Some, and Captain America. I'm definitely getting a raw deal in this. Well, I've also seen. You're going to um, see Alvin and the Chipmunks next time. What, even though it's not going to be released, okay. just to sit through okay. it. I didn't review it, just as punishment <laughs> for going to see feel-good films. I think you deserve it. Okay, so anyway, we've got Everybody Wants Some coming up. We've got Mustang coming up. We've got A Hidden Gem. Yep. The Man, Man in the Moon. in the Moon. The Man in the Moon. I'd be very surprised if any of you have heard of it. Yeah, a film from 1991 and is Reese Witherspoon's film debut. Yeah. So look out for that. Very exciting. Um, I, that was my choice that I brought along. And we're also, we've got a new genre, documentaries. And we're looking at two documentaries by Werner Herzog. Yes, Werner Herzog. Werner, Werner Herzog. And his narration over his... It'll probably be easier to do the accent when we've actually played some clips. Probably, yeah. Just So, so yes. Grizzly Man, and what's your one? Into the Abyss. Into the Abyss. <laughs> okay, fine. So we've got those coming up. Yeah. Stay tuned, guys. Cheers. Hello and welcome back to Everyone's Critic. Okay, so recently I've seen, as we've already said, I've seen a number of foreign language films on the trot and the most recent one I saw was Mustang which is a 2015 film directed by Turkish-French um, director Denis Ergoven. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. You know, just go for it. I know the president of Turkey is called Erdogan. 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 Yes. Okay, fine. Well, I'll take a shot at Ergoven then. Um, it's her directorial debut. She wrote a film before this one, uh, couldn't find funding for it. Uh, she went to Cannes, met uh, Alice Winokur, I think it was. They worked on the script for this together. So it's, it's a joint project, really. Mm. Um, the film is set in... Oh, sorry, just a bit of context. Budget, $1.3 million, so wow. fairly yeah. small. Yeah. Um, picked up a few awards at Cannes last year, which is where it premiered. Uh, nominated Best Foreign Language Film at Golden Globes and the Academy Awards. So, you know, you get the picture of sort of festival favourite, um, which doesn't always mean a good film. You know, remember the 
Babel. That was awful. I haven't seen it, but you assure me that it's really bad. Yeah. And that one, you know, you know, Enyaratu. Let's not go back there anyway. Um, so anyway, small budget foreign language film. It's about five orphan sisters um, living in living in Turkey with their grandmother and their uncle. And um, the film starts. They come out of school and they go and play on the beach with a group of, of boys from their school. And they're on the boys' shoulders playing a game of like they're playing handball or whatever. Mm. And they go home, and their grandmother is scolding them, saying, "You know, this is absolutely outrageous. You shouldn't be seen in public, like rubbing yourself up against boys, basically." Whereas it was literally just you know harmless fun. Mm. And the girls range from the age of about fifteen down to between sort of eleven and. No, sorry, about 12 to 17, I would say. Oldest okay. 17. The youngest uh, who narrates the film is about 12 or 13. Um, so, you know, huge scandal. They think, the grandmother thinks that um, the fact that they've been seen out in public like this is going to cause a scandal and people to talk negatively about her family and uh, their horrible uncle feels the same way and just, you know, says this is atrocious. So what he decides to do, and he's really the instigator because it's very much, it very much seems to be an environment where women do not call the shots, do you know what I mean? Mm. Their grandmother, despite the fact that she is, um, she disapproves of their behaviour, she still loves them and, you know, she wants to, she wants to help them in a sort of, in not such an imposing way, whereas their uncle is not like that at all and decides to lock them, basically put them under house arrest. Are you don't think that's done out of love? you think it's done out of... Yeah, it's very much, yeah, no, it's very much done out of what his idea of, um, you know, values should mm. be. And as the film progresses, we learn that he is someone without sort of any moral compass whatsoever. Um, so I've got a very brief clip to play you. Um, this is the girls fairly early into their lockdown, managed to escape and go to a football match that, because, it's quite funny actually, um, the football match is only letting women go because the last football match where, you know, men could be in attendance mm. as well, there were huge riots. So, you know, although the girls are apparently the perpetrators of crime, you know, as their uncle would have them suggest, it seems that actually, in reality, it could be the other way around. Here we go. Okay, so that kind of just gives you uh, the sound of, you know, the girls shouting or whatever. Um, so anyway, it's, I thought it was really interesting and I thought on a number of levels. First level is that as the uncle, as they keep escaping, the uncle keeps sort of reinforcing the the measures that to keep them in and it's very much um a sense of the fit uh the societal boundaries that are being placed on their lives mm. are um you know the 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 physical restrictions placed on them are a metaphor for that do you know what i mean and is it and you it can see that escalating like just the uncle or do you, are there other male characters who are saying you must do this yeah i mean there's all the male characters kind of sit around um you know, watching sport and stuff and being mm. served tea, etc., mm. by the women and by the younger, by the children. Um, and what happens is they start to be married off. They start to be forced into marriages. And as each one gets married off, you can feel at the same time the tension kind of escalating. And that's really how the, the plot works is 
it's almost like, uh, you know, who's going to be next? Mm. And they're all kind of being married off in, in order of age. Um, and one of them is actually quite happy with her marriage. The other one's not so happy with her marriage. Um, and, like, one of them is on the night of their marriage, when they're supposed to consummate the marriage, like, the next morning, the parents are knocking on the door to check that there's bloodstains on the sheets to prove that she was a virgin. Because this whole thing about the girl has to be a virgin when she gets married basically wow and it's not a religious it's not a religious thing it's just uh this is you know presumably you know the culture in In certain parts of turkey and the director coming from turkey i've seen an interview with her she talks about that quite a lot and saying it's basically women's rights in turkey is like the stone age or whatever yeah um it's got a great soundtrack by warren ellis which um it, despite the subject matter, manages to make the film seem quite light and colourful. The visuals are great as well. Um, a lot of it's shot outside and with sort of uh, almost it has an almost dreamlike quality. Um, yeah. You know, a bit like we've talked about this before in in Room. You know, despite the negative subject matter, you still come out with a sense of sort of you know life affirmation. Um, not quite to the same extent in this, mm. but um, in terms of the swings aren't quite as much. You never see. You know, you never feel quite as brutal as you do in room, but you, then again, you never feel, um, you know, such a sense of elation. Um, <clears throat> also, um, going back to the uncle, it turns out that he's actually like sexually abusing um, two of the girls, like one of the girls, and then she gets married off, and then he, he like goes on to the next one. So it's very much a sense of like highlighting the hypocrisy mm-hmm. taking place because he's imprisoned them. To keep them presumably, innocent, to keep them innocent, yeah. and to keep them from, you know, behaving, behaving Bad badly in, boy in public, yeah. and you know, flouncing around in skimpy clothing, etc., which are all fairly, you know, forgivable in this country mm. wouldn't even be thought twice of. And at the same time, then by keeping them in, um, you know. It, at the same time as keeping them in, he's actually then exercising his power over them. So it's, mm. it's more to do with power. You, you get the sense. Do you know mm. what I mean? Yeah. Do you think he? So you think he's a vehicle for Turkish culture? I. <laughs> I'm not going to go on the record saying no, that. No, no, no. But as in, but uh, a certain type of uh, view. I don't even know if it's country world. specific. I mean, I think those people exist. Everywhere. Everywhere. Do you know what I mean? It'd be a lot of, if you take a lot of, if you read interviews about, you know, sexual predation or whatever, mm. a lot of it is to do with power and oh, completely. not really, yeah, not so much power. to do with, you know, even um, sexual motivation. Mm. Um, but not, not, not in terms of that specific strand, but in terms of him, you know, being certain that what they're doing, mm. the, the, maybe the hypocrisy of it yeah. all. There's certainly a, feel, a feeling in the general... Um, in the general society that, um, you know, a man's view counts more than a woman's Mm. view. And really their grandmother, you know, just trying to marry them off to Mm. a load of men, despite the fact that she actually, you know, seems to love them. Mm. Um, Although, but she still feels like she has to go down that route because that is the done thing. Mm. Um, But, you know, as I said, I I think I've kind of made it sound like quite a dark film. And and in some ways it is. It's, It's quite an interesting comment on society. But at the same time, there are loads of really lovely sequences of... When the girls escape, uh, you know, very innocent sort of coming age, coming of age type ideas, and um, and as I said, the visuals are fantastic. So it's not it, it's it's not a film like Son of Saul where I sat there, I you know thinking this is a good film, but at the mm-hmm. same time, this is horrible. This is horrible. I'd probably choose not to watch this yeah. if I had the choice. Mm. Um, this is not one of those films. I think it is a film that audiences will enjoy and. You know, I, I'd, I'd be very happy to see it again. And I'm sure I'd see something things, out of it. Uh, definitely. I'm yeah. sure I'd, I'd see things the second time that I haven't seen the first time. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I would, I would really strongly recommend it. It's not playing in a huge number of theatres in London because uh, it is, you know, as we said, the budget's very small mm-hmm. and, you know, it's an indie film. But um, you will definitely be able to find a screening if you want to. And okay. I, would, I would strongly recommend it. Yeah, well, I you know, recommend it. you found one. So. Yeah, Crouch End, yeah. Exactly. Picture House. There we go. So that's Mustang. Uh, coming up with a change of tone, I would expect... Well, I know, actually, because we saw it together. Exactly. <laughs> Everybody wants some. Exclamation mark, exclamation mark. All right, see you in a bit. Stay tuned. 
welcome back to Everyone's a Critic. And uh, so, on Monday, Samuel and I somehow stumbled upon a preview screening of Everybody Wants Some. At half the price of general admission. Yeah. Um, Which doesn't really make sense. Yeah, the Crouch and Picture House were doing some sort of preview screening. Um, I mean, it's generally cheap on Mondays. They weren't like, it's a preview and it's cheap. Yeah, okay. Um, so we grabbed some Desperados and headed down there. Yeah. We we don't we don't drink unauthorized alcohol in, in the cinema. Please let us back in, picture house. Um, so yeah, so so we saw that on Monday evening, and so that's the most recent film by Richard Linklater, and we're both really big fans of Mr. Linklater. Uh, yeah, I mean, I have to say it was the film of the year that I was looking forward to the most so far, um, just because I love every film he's ever done, basically. Yeah. You know, there's films that I've preferred to this film this year, but in terms of general kind of, you know, excitement about a movie, this is probably it. Yeah, so if you don't know his other work, he's done um, what's known as the Before Trilogy, so that's Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, and the one that Samuel refuses to watch, Before Midnight. (laughs) I'm scared it's going to ruin the bittersweet, you know, romanticism of the previous films. Be brave. Well, no, I'm just going to... I'm still going to not watch it Yeah. for a while. I might watch it, you know, in 20 years or something. That's all right, you know, when you're their age. When I'm 35. Yes. <laughs> Samuel's actually 15. <laughs> okay. This is a really weird relationship we have. Um, so he's done those films. He's done Days and Confused. Which was his 70s. The movie about the 70s. Yeah, which is... This is kind of a spiritual sequel to. And also, I didn't realise until fairly recently, School of Rock. Yeah, that's a, of that's a Richard Linklater film. Yeah, and of course Boyhood. Yeah, and Boyhood. Yeah, um, which should have won Best Picture. So he's, you know, he's all right. He's not a bad. Owner. Yeah, he's he's not too bad. <laughs> so and I literally remember we were in the screening for um, what's that God film? Oh, um, the brand new Testament. The brand new Testament. And we saw the trailer for that, and you were like. Oh, we should go see that. That looks really good. I'm really excited. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so we go to see it on Monday. And so, as Samuel said, this is set in the 80s. So it's in the summer of 1980, specifically. And um, a guy who's about 18 or so, called Jake, goes off to college. Or, you know, university, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. In Texas. College for the purpose of the film. College for the purpose of the film. And he's living in what is essentially like a sport frat house in, you know with the baseball team, and the film is set in a very specific um, time period when he's moved in to college, but before term starts, so kind of like a Thursday to a Monday, um, and I can say kind of from experience, um, that's like the best part of uni, when you're not actually doing anything, kind of post, post exams, and also like pre, um, you moved in before anything actually serious yeah, yeah. starts, and just mess around, basically. Mm. Um, and... It's a it's a film about guys, basically. It's a guy film. It's definitely a guy film. Although this is based a lot on on Linklater's um, personal experience. Personal experience. He you know he played so at he, university for a baseball team. Was he a bit of a lad in the eighties? I think he might have been a little bit in that culture, but I think he's also like the protagonist, kind of observing it yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, so I guess the protagonist is really Linklater. You know, it's supposed to yeah. be Linklater. Yeah, channeling Linklater. Yeah, channeling Linklater. Just like, you know, if you had Owen Wilson in, um, you know, uh, that Woody Allen film. You know, he's sort of yeah. Woody Allen. You know, when a, when a, when a director gets Midnight too in old... Paris. Yeah, Midnight in Paris. So yeah, when a director gets too old to play, you know, themselves in yeah. their own movies, they often try and find the protagonist to, you know, yeah. represent who they feel like they were, I guess. Funnily enough, Frigid Linklater sounds a little bit like Owen Wilson. <clears throat> Um, but yeah, that's, 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 that's a nice circular point. point we've made there then oh, <laughs> fantastic we are on point today um, so here's a little clip from the film I think it sums up some of the tone quite well what are you doing? putting put it on first time wearing cologne? No. get it on there man get it under your arms and on your chest just put it on your neck come on I don't know man too much of this smells like cat piss. Oh, shit. I'm trying to help you out and you're going to question me? Jesus. I'm telling you, man, chicks dig this shit. All right? Now you can come back here and do the five-knuckle shuffle all night if you want to. I don't really care. What's the five-knuckle shuffle? 
Jesus, freshman, figure it out, man. Oh. Hey, Bill McReynolds. You're so fucking desperate, dude. Desperate for pussy? <laughs> Lol. So yeah, that was a scene of uh, you know, the guys getting ready to go out. And as you can imagine from the title, everybody wants some. Um, it's the weekend spent with a bunch of baseball players trying to get laid. Um, but it's funny because it's it's one of those... It's a lad film that's probably the least kind of lad film you could be, if that makes sense, on, on the way, lesser end of the spectrum. I less, mean, lesser end of the spectrum. I feel like um, a lot of lad films, the characters themselves are quite unlikable whereas in this film the distinction for me was that I actually liked the characters and I wanted to you know I didn't some of them, mind some of them I didn't though but I think Linklater is a director who has such a he, he, he always has so so much um, affection for his characters mm. and the way he writes them you can tell that that even the characters who might not necessarily be representative of something that you agree with or something that you're drawn to I still think in the way that they're written and in the way that they're, you know, portrayed, normally by actors, there's another point, actors who aren't that famous. Yeah. Um, so you really do feel like it makes them more authentic in a way. Definitely. And that's something that I think he does really well and that he gets. And I guess, you know, with his profile as a director that audiences will seek out, or certain audiences, he has the licence to cast yeah. nobodies, basically. Yeah. But that involves you in the character's... Even more so. Um, and, you know, I was... I think from that clip, it, I think it will split audiences a little bit. Like, either I get it or you don't. I was... I really enjoyed it. I was smiling throughout. Mm. I, you know, I liked all the humour. I think, you know, they are kind of stupid. But also, if you spend time around 18-year-old boys who all live together in one house and play for a sports team, mm. that is how they're going to act. And it does kind of undermine some of their kind of stupid beliefs. But also shows up their kind of... <coughs> you know, pseudo um, theories about how to chat people up or their kind of yeah. ridiculous chat when they're get, all getting stoned together. Mm, that, um, was, that was brilliant. That was, yeah, that was, was a great that, stoner moment. In that, that was a fantastic. I think it combines like a few different bits from, from different genres together. Mm. And, um, you know, I've you know, relatively recently left university and just made me miss living with all my all my mates in a big house. Well, I think that's a really good point. I mean, Keen for those kind of films... I wasn't... You know, I didn't go to the university in 1980, mm. but it's the... When you have characters. those group films, though, I think the sign of a film like that that works well is when an audience member is sitting there thinking, I really wish I was in that environment right now. And that's yeah. that, that shows that yeah. the film is working. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like when I saw Saturday Night Fever, you know, I did kind part of me did kind of want to be, you know, in uh, it was eighties, yeah, like yeah, yeah, exactly. Listening yeah. to the Bee Gees in a downtown New York dance club, you know, yeah. not anything I'd ever felt before. But um, when a movie's really good, it, it gives you that desire to enter yeah. into that kind of um, you know environment with those characters. And again, that's a sign that the characters are quite likable. Or, you know, if not likable, characters mm. that you could imagine getting on with and having a laugh with. Yeah. Likable yeah. characters aren't always the most fun people, are yeah. they? Yeah, no, yeah. C- certainly some of them. The lead, I think, and he serves as a kind of vehicle for the audience that a lot of the time he's observing and slightly kind of ridiculous behaviour that, you know, the audience mm. will as well. Um, and it's about kind of this ridiculous um, competitive edge that all of these guys have they're all um, athletes at you know they and they, they, make, a a, level, they yeah. make a point about these were all guys who were the best um, at baseball in their high school um, but who are they now mm. you know they're freshmen um, they're all getting hazed what I just have a slight issue is with that a lot of them did not look of university age whatsoever yeah well, some of them looked about 35 yeah yeah um, so that, yeah, that was kind of a slight casting thing, but he has a very keen sense for the time as well because it is specifically mm-hmm. 1980. Mm. It has quite a 70s feel as well, mm. you know. And I think you know, Richard Linklater describes it basically himself as the 80s before you know Reagan and Thatcher ruined it. And if you look carefully at the equivalent of their Freshers' Fair, there's kind of Reagan Bush um, little campaign stand. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, no, you're right. It, it does look. It's a very um, 
in terms of its visuals, you can tell it's mm. it's of that period. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. he's, he's very good at that. You know? Yeah, definitely. Um, and so, yeah, so, yeah, some people would say it's just all about lads and there aren't... And I think this is true. There's basically one three-dimensional female character in the whole film. Yeah, but, but I don't so, think it's... Did you invest in that relationship? That's the question, I, because it kind of becomes a different film later on. It kind of starts doing the before sunrise thing of, okay, we're going to put... Um, you know, there's a love interest. I don't know if that's mm. a plot spoiler. You know, we're going to put the main character who's going to meet a girl, and then we're going to have those. We're going to have those observing dialogue sequences. Do you know what I mean? Where it's literally just filming them talking. And I, I, I well, love I those kind of sequences. But does it? Did it work? I mean, you know, she's not Julie Delpy, and he's not Ethan Hawke. No matter how much you might like them as actors mm. or actresses, mm. you know. And I just, I felt like it was kind of trying to become a film that it you know another film too late in the film yeah it it didn't really add a huge amount it gave it some direction and another thing about Linklater's films um, you know especially kind of the before films and Boyhood and this one is you know it's all character no plot yeah and this gave it some sort of direction and some sort of Mm. you know uh, motivation for the characters to let's go to this party because this person will be here so, you know, it gave some direction to it. And you say, you know, it does, you know, it's just doing the observing dialogue thing. Well, it does that, but just with a bunch of dudes instead. Yeah, no, I mean, no, I don't The film was much more invested in, those the, in the bromance than it is the romance. Yeah. And it didn't add much to it, but I know I didn't feel the worse for it. But I, I get your, your point as well. Mm. Um, uh, I don't think I'd say, you know, it's... It's not his best. I prefer all the before films and Boyhood. Boyhood yeah. I think it's similar in terms of quality to School of Rock. I think it's his... It's probably his film where I've laughed. It's definitely the film that I've laughed, his film that I've oh, laughed most at. Yeah. It's probably yeah, his funniest I, film. I'd say so. But then again, it is a film that's supposed to be funny. And yeah. I mean, I think there's a certain... You know, you can give him a bit of leeway here because yeah. it's not like he has to... Hit hit home emotionally every no. time. He, you know, I laughed the whole way through. I lit, and as you said, we came out of that screening, and you said, "Were you, were you smiling the whole way through?" Mm. And I said, "Yes, I could yeah. sit there. I'd watch it again. I really would. I'd go to the cinema with a bunch of friends. I'd watch it again. I'd watch it two more times. I really, really enjoyed it." Yeah, it's nothing. I don't think it's anything profound. No, I haven't um, thought about it a huge amount since. No, until like now. But you'll enjoy it. I enjoyed it. And what it does is like. Lotus, probably nearly all of his films, is it's about, you know, living in the moment. Mm. You know? Yeah. Just taking this this particular time and just live. Because you don't know what's coming around the corner. No, you don't at all. You're 18 years old, you've just moved into your house. You're in a frat house with a, a bunch house. of sexist 1980s... Baseball players. Toothbrush moustache. Yeah. yeah. Handlebrush. Yeah. Handlebrush. Yeah. So I I enjoyed it. It's not perfect by any means. It's not at best, but um, but go for a go for a laugh. Yeah, go for a laugh and just just smile, have a good time. Yeah. Wish you, you were there. Leave your girlfriend at home. <laughs> lads, 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 lads. Okay, good. Well, I think we've covered uh, that and Richard. Yeah. Coming up next, a documentary about grizzly bears, or a grizzly man actually. A grizzly man and the death penalty in a small Texas town. There we go. Change of tone, alright. Change right. of tone coming up. Okay, so, coming to a new section now, our documentary section, um, looking at a couple of films by Werner Herzog. Yeah, so this guy, he's been making films since the 60s, and unusually enough, he's actually got a pretty even split between fiction films um, and documentaries. He's made, um, if you guys know these, he's made um, Bad Lieutenant with Nicolas Cage. Have you seen that? No, it's I've pretty, heard of it though. pretty mad. Right. Um, and a film that I didn't realise until very recently that he made uh, called Rescue Dawn, which is um, with Christian Bale, about a guy who gets um, a pilot in the kind of Cambodian, feature Vietnam. Film. Yeah, feature film. Yeah. Um, he gets shot down, um, kind of surviving in the jungle, etc. So, you know, he's made a lot of films. He's been making films since the 60s. Hmm. But he's as well known, if not more well known, for his documentaries yeah. as his fiction. Films. Well, I haven't seen any of his films before 
uh, Grizzly Man, mm. to be honest. And the way I found it was I, I was looking for a film that had some really nice scenery in it. Because mm. I just was, it, it sounds weird, I was just in the mood to watch, you know, a film that was quite easy on the eye visually. Yeah. Which is kind of ironic because Grizzly Man is quite, um, might be beautifully scenic, but mm. it's quite a difficult, uh, quite harrowing subject matter. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it harrowing, it's, I'd say, because it's disturbing. Yeah. It's probably more, the better way to describe okay. it. So, so it follows on, basically chronicles the life of Timothy Treadwell, who was a grizzly bear enthusiast. Um, he used to go out into the middle of Alaska, um, sort of the back ends of Alaska, and live with grizzly bears for long periods of time uh, during, in the summer months. Um, because he felt like he, he, he thought he was there to protect the bears from poachers, but really... There, there had never been any poaching in that national park, like, ever recorded. So it, it's wow, almost... Okay. He was almost delusional in thinking that. Mm. Um, and what's so interesting about the film is that it, it's not really a film about grizzly bears. It's a film that's much more interested, and I think clearly Werner Herzog was much more interested in getting inside the psyche of Timothy Treadwell and mm. why he put himself in the face of such danger, you know, for such extended periods of time. And... I don't think it's a spoiler because they talk about it at the beginning of the film. Mm. It led to his his death in mm. 2003. He was mauled by a bear. Him and his girlfriend uh, were mauled and killed, eaten oh, basically okay. by a grizzly bear that they were filming. You know, they were doing a documentary about. So um, I've got a brief clip here of Timothy Treadwell um, talking. Well, it's Werner Herzog introduces the clip and. There's one thing that's present throughout this documentary that isn't in other documentaries, I, I'm not sure. Well, sorry, that isn't in every documentary. Like, you you watch the Amy Winehouse mm. documentary, that's just a collection of clips from her life, you know. Yeah, interviews, and then interviews. footage. Whereas, and there's no, there's no narration mm. in that. Whereas this one, Werner Herzog, you can tell he is the filmmaker, and, yeah. you know, he narrates it throughout, and it essentially... Even though it's about someone else, it is his movie, mm. and he is giving his take on events. So anyway, here's a here's a brief clip um, with Werner Herzog narrating and Timothy Treadwell talking about his duty to protect the grizzlies. There were visitors every now and then, but for Treadwell, they were just intruders, an encroaching threat upon what he considered his Eden. Even the park service itself became an enemy because of its restrictions. I have decided to violate a federal rule which states I must camp one mile. Every week I must move one mile after staying for seven consecutive days. If I was to do that here, I would not be able to study these bears. I would not be able to really protect them. I'd have to actually move out of the bay to get a mile out. Therefore, I have decided to protest the United States government and guard these bears anyway and stay. And I have In order to get around the rule of not camping permanently in one spot, he would camouflage and hide his tent from the park service. But more than that, he was in constant violation of another very reasonable park Hi. rule, that you have Hi. to maintain at least 100 Hi. yards distance from the bears. So there you heard the voice of... Werner Herzog narrating, as I said, and Timothy Treadwell. Um, it does kind of make you think that Timothy Treadwell was, as I said, a delusional, and that almost his presence out there had less to do with his love of nature, and this is quite condemning, actually, had less to do with his love of nature than it being a place where he felt removed from the previous troubles that he'd had in his life. He'd had quite a lot of like alcohol problems, etc. Um, you know, quite a lot of psych psychological mm. distress. Um, you know, and it's almost like this was a, a remedy for him, you know. And the fact that he thought he was protecting the bears, um, you know, from... from and, and against the United States government, you know, did, did, didn't you get the sense that he was almost um, uh, paranoid? A little bit, yeah. You know, what is the seems fairly, as Werner says there, fairly reasonable um, Rule. rules. That you shouldn't be in close contact with the bears. The, the most obvious reason is that it'd be dangerous for you, but also it's dangerous for the bears because if you um, get them accustomed to 
to humans and you get mm. them accustomed to human contact and it and you know it's not negative for th- mm. that interaction is not negative for them then they're much more likely to fall foul of poachers yeah you know i have been lucky enough to stay in places in the states camping where there are bears and you have to lock up all of your stuff in bell because you can't have anything that smells vaguely of anything at all in your tent um because you know if bears come around and they get used to food being left out they're comfortable with humans and you can't have bears who are like that because you you run the risk of it. So it's protect, about protecting the bears as well. Exactly. And there's a lot of park rangers and stuff on uh, who go on the record on the documentary mm. saying you know they didn't have a they didn't have a lot of respect for Treadwell. Mm. Um, but then again, you know you do get the sense that he is completely devoted to his work. He gives talks that don't you know he doesn't ask for any money for them. Mm. Um, but I think there's this central point, and that's what kind of uh, Werner Herzog closes with, is that Timothy Treadwell had a rose-tinted view of nature, and he, because he felt like he had an understanding with the bears, he almost felt like he was above a, a bear's desire just to basically do what man was supposed to do, which is just eat and reproduce, you know? Yeah. And, um, and in the end, you know, he fell victim to you know to nature and to its harsh reality but that i, I think that's what you get if you des- if you decide to put yourself in those situations but then again he always said if he was going to die doing if he was going to die he'd like to die doing this anyway so i guess there's no real winners or losers in the situation no it sounds like an interesting character study though it is really yeah, about, it was really interesting about the thing it's about nature as well in it yeah a reality check on um, Th- that like kind, kind of, of, like of attitude. Well, uh, yeah, the um, yeah, the, the the they may be beautiful, but they're also bears. They're also bears, and you know, as I said, you know, there's certain rules in nature that you know there's boundaries that you don't mm. cross in nature, and he decided to cross them. And but then again, if he wasn't, if he was prepared for what happened to him, then I then what's you know who are we to say that that was the wrong thing to do? You know, yeah. at the end of the day, you're in charge of your own destiny or whatever yeah. you know yeah. so no i was really really interesting i would strongly recommend it and great scenery and a great soundtrack by the great richard thompson well sounds fascinating um i saw another Werner herzog film um just yesterday morning actually uh it was called into the abyss and it's about um a so two guys who are convicted of triple murder in a small texas town um yeah, kind of around the uh, 99, 2000. Okay. Um, so two guys who are kind of pretty good friends who had some acquaintances who lived in a, a gated community um, and they were going to try and get into his house. Um, and Sean Wormer's way in there, kind of stay around whilst he's asleep, steal his car. Try and get into the house. Turns out he's not there. His mum's there. Have a new plan. Go in there. Kill her, kill his mum, um, and get the car. Get kill the mum, then try and dump the body. Then realise, okay, we're now out of the gated community. See these other two guys. Okay, we need to get the clicker for the garage and to get in the gated community. Then kills the other two guys, including the son, um, her son, to get the car, steal the car, and his friend. So they've killed three people. Basically, absolutely no reason whatsoever. Just to get a car. Just to get a, a Corvette. Right. Um, no, they don't last particularly long. So that's the basic setup of it. And that's, um, you know, I heard him talk about it. And he said he wanted to choose um, a film when talking about the death penalty um, that's fairly open and shut. You know, it's not about whether he did it or not, or whether it's a miscarriage of justice, yeah. or whether they should have been, if they were convicted of it, whether it was a crime you should be. Mm. You know, mm. it's a senseless triple murder. Mm. Um but what's interesting about this case is there were two separate trials for the two perpetrators. One of them was given a death sentence, and he was on death row for ten years. Um, and, and then executed. Uh, yeah, and then executed. And this film kind of starts his interviews, um, you know, a few weeks before. Right. Okay. You know, he is put to death. Yeah. And the other guy is sentenced to life to forty years or so. Yeah. yeah. Um, Why did they get different sentences? Then? Two different trials. Um, but well, they didn't. They both do the same thing. Yeah, I think one of them admitted to it. So, um, so he he got let off the death penalty. Yeah, I think so. I think he admitted to it in the trial, and the other guy admitted to it 
to the police, and that's how they help find the body. So they both, even though both think deny that deny it now, mm. it's fairly clear that they both did it and have admitted to it previously. Yeah. Um. So it then proceeds with a number of interviews with you know the two guys who've been convicted, their family, um, the family of the victims, but also interestingly, um, a pastor who is um, you know deals with people who are on death row. Um, and is often their last point of contact, uh, and a captain in you know, so-called death house, people who home, who, who house um, death row inmates in their last days, you know, who give them their last meal and their, their last few wishes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so know, is it interested in the process, or is it's, it it's more a, interested a, in the characters? I think both in a way. Um, I'll play a clip and then talk a bit more about okay. it afterwards. So this is a clip of Michael Perry, uh, who is the guy who is convicted um, to be put to death. Michael Perry, now from all of us, the whole team here, we would like to offer our condolences. Your father passed away. Okay, on the 10th. My dad died 13 days ago. 13 days ago. Yeah, on June 10th. But you will die or you are scheduled for execution in right. only eight days. Yes, sir. How are you doing? You know, uh, you know, I'm a Christian, so you know, I believe that you know, paradise awaits one way or the other. So I tell people all the time, I'm either going home or home. So I'm either going home to the world or home to God. So I, you know, as the days get closer, I can feel the pressure on my shoulders. Uh, they call it clinical depression, where I just start having less motivation to do things, less energy. Um, you get frustrated at the at the system. How can they not see? You know, my situation is wrong. Uh, you know, I, I, I used to write all the time and have a lot of energy, and I just don't have it anymore. I just feel like I've been beaten down. So that was um, an interview that Werner Herzog is doing. Um, and, you know, like Grizzly Man, you know, he does feature in the film, doing the interviews. Um, not, so, not so much narration, but, you know, he's doing the interviews. And at one point he does say, I don't think anyone should be put to death. So there is a bit of a kind of... Um, agenda. Yeah, a slight agenda about, you know, is this the right thing to be doing? Is there not hypocrisy of, you know, it's so bad to kill three people, let's why kill... Why kill two more? What, yeah, why kill one or two more? Which you can kind of sympathise with. Yeah, you know, I personally share that view. Mm. Um, I don't think it's best strength is a political point, and I don't think Herzog is really trying to make some sort of political polemic film. Mm. Um... I think he's incredibly sensitive in terms of dealing with all the different sides and gives you a really rounded picture. And he doesn't just deal with uh, the people being convicted and ignore the fact that, you know, they did brutally murder yeah. three people yeah. for essentially no reason at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, and their families. and But also it gives you um, this idea of this kind of, uh, you know, a mixture between... These two guys are from a really shitty background, basically. Mm. Um, one of them, whose dad's been in prison, didn't really know him, and they, they talked to his dad um, in a small Texas town. But also, like the people they kill live in this gated community. So I think it it almost succeeds most in its idea of kind of crime and punishment in kind of rural Texas. Yeah, um, I thought it was focused a lot actually on the American South. This yeah, week, this week, funnily enough. Yeah, yeah. Well, I enjoyed it. It's, it's a, a little bit aimless. I think we could have had kind of more um, cohesion yeah. in a way. Um, I mean, I, I I enjoyed it. It was it's pretty harrowing, but it made you think, and I've, you know, I've been thinking about it since. I mean, I think what I really enjoyed about Grizzly Man, he just really felt like a filmmaker who was genuinely interested in his subject matter, definitely, and yeah. not. Just making a film about it because it was pop, you know, popular yeah. topic or whatever. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Don't get me wrong; they are fascinating subjects. Yeah. But at the same time, with Grizzly Man, it felt like throughout, through his narration, I could hear him trying to understand, you know, the psyche of Timothy Treadwell. You know, yeah. actively trying to understand that through his filmmaking, and it's yeah. almost like he's making the film in an attempt to understand himself. Do you yeah. know what I mean? And not just to show audiences what happened. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. not a simple case of just saying this is what happened and just letting you watch it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. He, he's very much active in that He's well. guiding you through it. He's guiding you through it and he's trying to put his own, you know, interpretation on it. Mm. And 
you know, I have I have a lot of respect for that. And I, for me, it enhances the, the watching, for me. Yeah. Um, okay, good. So, Werner, thumbs up to Werner, then. Yeah, yeah. On, on both two, fronts. Two thumbs up. Um, I'd like to see Grizzly Man, actually. You should. Yeah. yeah, you should watch it. Yeah, and that one looks good as well, actually. Um, coming up now, we have our hidden gem, Man in the Moon, which I'm really, really excited about. It's... Um, one of the best films I've seen over the last couple of years. It's, it's a 1991 film, but I, I watched it recently, and um, it's, yeah, it's really fantastic. So stay tuned for that. Cheers. Hello, and welcome back. So we just had our documentary section with Werner Herzog, and now moving on to the final section of the podcast, it's our favourite hidden gems section. Um, so I brought along The Man in the Moon, which is a 1991 film directed by Robert Mulligan. It was actually his last film. Um, he directed it when he was, I think he was about 67 when he directed it. Um, I didn't really know any of his other movies apart from... To Kill a Mockingbird. It's a pretty major one. Yeah, it's a pretty major one. But, I mean, th- there have been a few To Kill a Mockingbird films, but this is the one yeah. with Gregory Peck, uh, yeah. 1962, which I think everyone has known and probably a lot most people will have seen. You know, I watched it at school, for instance. So, anyway, um, his last film, it centres around three characters, um, two sisters, one's called Danny, one's called Maureen. Danny is the youngest sister. She's 15, and she's portrayed by... Reese Witherspoon. In, in her film debut. In her film debut, yeah, when she was 15 as well, I think. Um, so, Danny... So, they so they live in in southern southern America. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Alabama, kind of very rural Alabama as well, um, in 1954. 1950, yeah, set in 1954. The reason we know that is because Elvis is on the radio singing That's Alright Mama, which was... If any, if, well, people might know the birth of rock and roll, basically. Considered the birth of rock and roll when Elvis cut um, That's All Right Mama in Sun mm. Studios in 54. That's when rock and roll began. So that's playing on the radio, and Danny, the youngest, is you know obsessed with um, Elvis. Anyway, they live on this, uh, they live on a farm, rural America. Uh, family moves in next door. They've got a son who's 17. His name is Court. He starts hanging out with Danny, uh, Reese Witherspoon's character. And the, uh, their parents are friends. Their parents are friends, they yeah. know each other, they're family friends. Um, Reese Witherspoon's character starts falling for this 17-year-old guy who, you know, they go swimming in the local pond and stuff. And so she she sort of falls in young love with him, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah I, I'd say so. Um, are they, you've had a nice little clip. Of it as well, didn't you? Yeah, we've so we've got a clip here of when she realizes, you know, her feelings for court. She has to start asking her sister, "What do you do, you know, when you like a boy, and you know, how would you go about uh, kissing someone?" Because obviously she's so young, so innocent that mm. she hasn't come across this particular milestone just yet and needs some guidance. Here's a clip. What if I forget what to do? <sighs> just do what you feel. If I do what I feel, I'll burst a million pieces and go flying out into space. That sounds to me like a good way not to get kissed twice. Marine, have you ever liked somebody so much it almost made you sick? Millie Sanders makes me sick every time I look at him. You know what I mean. It's like my stomach ties up in knots. And I can't breathe. And sometimes I think I'm going to throw up. (laughs) Well, don't throw up, Danny. Whatever you do, don't throw up. Like the little southern twang of Reese Witherspoon's voice there. Yeah, I think think she's actually... She's from that part of the world. Um, Yeah. And she is fantastic. She is so brilliantly naturalistic. Yeah. um, In a way that's kind of a... You know, a very forthright fourteen-year-old girl would be, um, and I think, and is so forthright in her views and the way that teenagers are and can't, you know, accept that the world may not be as how they see it. And also, you, I mean, you heard the sort of very honest dialogue. You know, sometimes I feel like I'm going to burst, you know, apart or whatever. Yeah, um, it's it, it it manages to talk very barefaced about 
you know, things like Young Love without sounding twee or, you know, forced emotionally. And that's one of its greatest mm. strengths. There's another great line that she has in there where she's talking to Court and she says, I want to know you, I want to know you more, I want to know you all I can, I want to know all your hopes, etc., mm. etc. Um, you know, and it's, it's just that very... Because she's so young, she's unable to... Um, express herself with court the way that she would like yeah. to in a physical way because of her youth so she has to find another way of vocalizing it and expressing it do you know what i mean um so that's a really beautiful scene um there's also a sense as the film then moves on it becomes apparent that court who's the boy um although he's interested in danny she's just a young girl and her older sister maureen um is more physically attractive and you know more alluring and and closer to his age yeah. but also that's even preempted by the earlier parts of the film before the man even appears uh, before court even appears maureen for instance is helping out at home like with the baby and stuff and growing into a, a real woman mm-hmm. whereas danny is would rather go and play outside you know play the pond yeah yes yeah. so it has a real it has a really great contrast there between um you know a boy what a boy is interested in at that age and you know because he's growing up he's looking for different things than he might have been th- three years ago you know when him and danny might have have really hit it off um so i think that's incredibly skilled to to be able to show that but again as we've already said to show it so kind of in such a pure way yeah yeah i know i like that. i think it was they, I thought some of the relationships felt a little rushed in the way that I think you know they were good and they got to the kind of initial, um, you know, when they first see each other, that kind of snap, lightning bolt attraction. Mm. Um, between the later, between the older sister. Yeah, between the older two. Um, mm. And they kind of, you know, quite a sweet relationship between Danny and Court. Um, but I felt like sometimes it was a little rush to be totally believable I thought um, I, didn't, I didn't get the but, but that's what young love is like yeah yeah no uh, it, it is it is it is immediate do you know what I mean yeah, no, it's it, not it it's immediate. not thought out that's yes the, that's the point and for Danny for, she'd probably never been in contact with a boy that age before you know yeah no I I believed more in a way Danny's you know infatuation infatuation with him and um, what uh, I think Jason London who plays Court. Yeah, he hasn't been in a great deal since, apart from Days and Confused. Funnily enough, um, really? yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, bring it full circle with a little bit of Yeah. Um, you know, he's his kind of not so much exasperation, but you know, he he likes Court and he gets on with her. Um, Danny. Sorry, yeah, he likes Danny and gets on with her. Um, but a, you know, he knows he can't pursue anything with her even mm. if you wanted to mm. um, and be that she is you know, 14 and he's 17 mm. and they are kind of completely different ages and three years doesn't seem that much but at, at that age it's huge mm. it's a huge gulf exactly um, and I thought I had a really kind of sweet sense of time and place and actually um, it's actually just got a very few, limited number of sets where it's filmed a yeah. lot of it is at their house. You get to know at, the at locations the quite well. Yeah. Um, at the house, at the pond. Some of it in the kind of farm where Court um, lives and works. Mm. Um, so it's very, not, not claustrophobic, but it has a very keen sense of this is where the action takes place. This is where these people live their lives. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it, and it gives it a kind of domestic feel, doesn't it? Definitely, definitely. It brings um, which it is quite, like is, quite close to home. And... The, the way I came across this film was um, I was reading a Roger Ebert reviews and it was one of his favourite films of 1991 uh, in his top ten. And he said, he had this to say about it, and I quote, Nothing else Mulligan has done approaches the purity and perfection of the man in the moon. As the film approached its conclusion without having stopped, stepped wrong once, I wondered whether he could do it, whether he could maintain the poetic, bittersweet tone and avoid the sentimentalism and uh, cheap emotion that could have destroyed this story. Would he maintain the integrity of this material? He would, and he does. And I think, to the end, it is faithful to its subject material. I don't know where you thought it was going, but there's there's quite a big thing that happens at the end. Not not going to reveal what it is, obviously. But um, 
it, it, it then brings into play this idea of sibling rivalry and to what extent you can forgive, you know, a, a, yeah. a, a sibling. Um, and, you know, moves into that area and also what love means to one person and what love means to another person, you know, i.e. what love means to Danny, the younger yeah. sister, and what it means to the older sister. Yeah. In a way, for the older sister, it was something more real, something more tangible, because you had previous ones to relate it to. Yeah. And also, it, it could have worked. Whereas yeah. with Reese Witherspoon's character, it was almost, a hope, you know, hopeless from the start, yet yeah. she fully believed in it. Um, yeah, I, I thought it was brilliant. And I've actually only seen it once. I've seen bits of it since but I'm I'm going to go back and rewatch it actually because I think it is a, a really great film. Yeah, really really sweet and just I think notable if nothing else for Reese Witherspoon's, Reese Witherspoon's performance. Yeah. I mean if you yeah. if you're put off by hearing the fact that Reese Witherspoon's in it as you might be if you've seen, you know, a lot of modern films she hasn't she's had a very varied back catalog, mm. you know, that's p- probably putting it lightly. You know, she's been good in films like Wild. She's good in the early film Election. Um, Walk the Line. Of yeah, Walk the Line. She's great in that. Yeah. I mean, I really, really like Weezer the Spoon. But I think if you watch this, you'll understand that she was obviously a very, very strong talent at a, mm. an incredibly young age. Mm. Um, you know, it's approaching the kind of emotional maturity. Um, I, I, I don't know, actually. I can't think of anyone. No. Neither can I. It's <laughs> also one of the best kind of teenage performances. It is, yeah. I've seen. Okay, good. So I hope we got that across. Go and watch The Man in the Moon, 1991, Robert Mulligan. And that's it from us for today. I hope you enjoyed the show. I certainly did. I see. <laughs> yeah, yeah we've, we've really covered some ground, haven't we? Yeah, we've... We've, we've been to Texas twice. Yeah, it's been a bit of an emotional <laughs> roller coaster. It um, has, God. But, you know, I hope we've, we've kept you all intact with our jumping around of tones between, you know... People Everybody wants some. By... People get more to death by grizzly bears, sexism, and etc. In Turkey and in everybody wants some. It could be argued. Yeah, triple murders. Triple in Texas. Triple murders. And then an and... idyllic view of 1950s Alabama. There we go. Ending on a nice note. Yeah. Well, goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. See you in a couple of weeks. Bye bye.